Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric, Prakash and Herman to discuss the topic of leadership within tech teams. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Eric, do you want to kick us off? Uh, Sure. My name is Eric Costello. I work, uh, sorry, I'm an executive director of data science at WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery. I came in on the Warner Brothers side, so studio side. And um, currently my role focuses on data science for content production broadly considered. What kinds of content uh, should we make and uh, how, how do we do it? What are the processes involved all before the marketing step? Great. Thanks, Eric. And Prakash? Hi, my name is Prakash. Uh, I'm a senior manager uh, of data engineering at Atlassian. And more specifically on to my role, I manage a data engineering team which supports the customer support and services organization within Atlassian. And uh, as part of that, my team builds data assets and uh, gives data capabilities to our data science analyst folks within the company so that we can provide the best customer support experience for all of our Atlassian customers uh, using our products. Perfect. Thanks, Prakash. And uh, Herman? Hi, uh, my name is Herman Verstig, and I'm the Director of Data Engineering at Zyda TrueCare. Uh, we are a software company in the health space. Um, so my role, um, see. in my role, um, I'm, I'm very much involved in our uh, AWS cloud migration that we're undergoing at this moment, as well as leading customers um, to, to the cloud, as well as other strategic uh, engagements with customers. And of course, any any and all data architecting uh, type of work lands on my shoulders as well. I have a bit of a background in um, uh, access and identity management. I've worked for the company that in- invented the question, what is your mother's maiden name? So the first company to do self-service password reset, uh, as well as in cyber privacy. And then I've worked for a reinsurance company and a large online retailer. Great. Thanks so much, guys. So now we've established a context for each of you. Uh, Keen to move on to the topic in focus. So you've all prepared questions or comments. So keen to get going. So, Eric, we're going to start with you and very prevalent tech. Your first topic within the leadership podcast is people are not robots. So do you want to kick us off with that one? Sure. Uh, I was looking at my topics uh, before the before the call here, and uh, I sort of even have a higher level observation, which is that uh, leadership is not command and control, right? It's not telling people what to do. It yes, there's some telling, but there's a lot of asking and supporting. So uh, people are not robots. People are complex, right? We we come with a bundle of things uh, with us, and um, the things that perhaps got us into a technical leadership role are not necessarily the things that got us, uh, that are not the same as the technology that we have the mastery of, right? So you have that mastery of technology level, but there could be a gap in understanding uh, people. The obvious solution here is seek out some training for this, right? Get get help. Um, I've done that even though you know, I thought, oh, I don't need this. Mm, I do need this. And then at the training, I think to myself, and there's people here who need it even more than me. So, you know, um, I guess, yes, there's a, everybody has things they need to work on. So working on that is, is something we should actively cultivate as we go along. Um, and our team, 
our team's expectations for us will grow here as well. So they want to get things from us and they will expect us to have perhaps more visibility into what the management is thinking and doing than we might actually have. So I've usually just approached this by telling them as much as I can and, you know, letting them know what I know and where that boundary is. And sometimes, you know, I, I tell them I can't tell them, but I try to keep them uh, as uh, in the loop for, for what they need. Um, well, what they think they need. Some discussion like that. It's a discussion. Different people have different heads down versus outward uh, sort of focus. And then... Um, I think the focus there brings me to my second topic, which is understanding the operating model. So here we have a little more of an outward focus than an inward focus, right? So how does our team fit? Uh, and um, and even so the operating model will tell us what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to do it, you know, sort of as an organizational role definition and how we go about getting things done and who we're supposed to help. But even though we might have in our mind that our team does this right there's still as a leader in an organization a need for under getting the buy-in right just because it's in your portfolio doesn't mean that you automatically everybody knows you're going to do that or wants you to do it the way you, you thought about so you're still in the role of building consensus relating to other leaders relating to other regular you know non people have leadership at all levels so right people who have sort of the a leadership bent, whatever their formal title is, you want to be working with them to get the understanding of what can we do and how does that fit into the organizational role that we have as a team, right? So it's not a rigid, that's not rigid either, right? So from the next level up, there's a team that can have various capacities and various performance levels and blah, blah. So you you want to hope to get your best fit there. So that's uh, very generally the operating model. And then um, uh, mentoring uh, was the third general topic I had. And I thought about this too. Uh, the cup half full, cup half empty cliche. I've always come to the assumption that people want to contribute, right? People are there to contribute. So I treat them as people who want to contribute, and that seems to generate pretty good results most of the time. You know, that helps people with different histories uh, uh, contribute. Um, uh, I guess what I wanted to say here was also that because of the different histories, people experience the same thing, formally the same thing, in different ways, right? We Something happens, you've got different people in the room. They don't have, they don't experience it the same. So how do we, even though it may be a technology thing or maybe some managerial directive, whatever, there's there's uh, there's different experiences and we need to know our team well enough to know how to help people who need more help or, you know, whatever that is to be that sort of clutch between, how, you know, the, the details of contributing and the motivation and the yeah, that was great. Thank you, Eric. I think you, you touched on some really, really interesting points then just on um, firstly, just giving people the option to contribute because there are so many leaders that that don't do that. They think because they're in that position that maybe, um, you know, it's it's their decision. So I don't know if anybody ha anybody else has any experiences of that or, 
you know, opinions on that. I'm sure we've all, yeah, I'm sure we've all been in that situation before, Prakash. Yeah. So regarding the first topic, people are not robots. I, I, I kind of connect and resonate with that quite a bit. And um, I'm a firm believer of being a compassionate leader. And for me, it, it means showing empathy, self-awareness, and and really in many ways showing genuine altruism where we as leaders put our team ahead of ourselves in many ways, right? And on this very topic, I want to quote something uh, Jeff Weiner, the ex-CEO of LinkedIn, uh, once told in an all-hands meeting while I was at LinkedIn as an IC many years ago. And he said, successful leaders do not achieve greatness by accident. Over the course of their careers, they establish principles that are very core to the way they approach their roles. Um, as leaders, when we cultivate trust and compassion with the team, we set in motion dynamics that can make the team highly effective and drive high quality decisions much faster. Um, so this is something that I really followed. I have followed uh, thus far in my career as I've won multiple hats over the years, uh, led teams as tech lead, jumped into a management uh, role, and, and now I'm, I'm a senior manager at Classian. And following this um, compassionate management style has, has definitely been a, a journey for me and um, definitely resonate with the fact that we should consider our team um, ahead of ourselves and, and not treat them as robots who, who just are there to do the work that we assign them to do. Yeah, absolutely. Herman, did you, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I actually wanted to add or ask Eric a question. Um, so looking at all three topics, if we tie them all together, we see an, uh, an interesting tension, I think, between uh, consensus building and inviting dissent. So where on one hand, people want to contribute uh, and they don't on only contribute by writing lines of code, right? Uh, you want their brain rather than uh, another, like a human version of chat GPT. Um, so uh, let's see. So how, how do you uh, break the tension or how do you invite uh, dissent in your conversations, uh, healthy dissent, not arguments, obviously, um, to get to a better, better solution. Uh, yeah, to to get to better solutions, uh, and also I think where you can address your own limitations. Again, you start out. People are not robots. Uh, we all need to learn new things. There are gaps in your knowledge. Uh, again, how how do you invite a dissent, and how do you um, eventually build consensus? in those conversations? Uh, really good question. Um, so inviting dissent, I sort of, I think I do this mostly by modeling an issue. We have a, a that we're a challenge of some kind that we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, I, I make some suggestions about the kinds of things that could possibly be solutions. And, you know, maybe I start critiquing my own or show two possible approaches that inherently cannot both be adopted to show that this is a dialogue, right? This is a dialogue between us and some objective goal and the strategies we might apply to it. So, you know, there's another level, which is, should this be a goal at all? But, um, I sort of, that's the next level up, but that's, you know, at all the levels, the, the you know, just, uh, I guess, by my own personality, people know that I'm, I'm very open to dissent by showing where I've advocated for different positions and I want them to do that. I I actually tell people, please, I need you to tell me if I'm telling you something that doesn't make sense. Right? Like 
if, if you just sit there in silence and listen to me blather and you think this guy's making no sense, I really don't want that. I really want to know. Um, then you had another part of your question. If you could remind me or you want to react to that. Nathan. No, I, I think actually it was really one question again, uh, because okay. it comes down to how do you prevent your own blind spots to to make you fail, basically, right? Because uh, right. again, for me, my, my main uh, way is to in, indeed invite opposing opinions um, by and being open. And and one thing that has worked for me quite well is when you make that decision as a team, and of course you as the lead, you as a leader, you're responsible uh, responsible for the end result. However, when you make a decision and let's say you go with a decision that was not your original idea, um, if that does, if the, well, if the outcome is not the way you had expected or had hoped, because that happens sometimes, um, I believe that you just continue, you have to continue to work through that uh, rather than come back as like, well, I told you so. Uh, do that once or twice. And people will no longer oppose your your views because, well, if I'm right, you're gonna take the credit, which uh, is right. painful. And if I'm wrong, you're gonna blame me. Um, right. So that that's I think another thing. At least that that has worked for me in the past. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if there's any other uh, views on that, Prakash. Yeah, I actually have a question and a comment on the second. Uh, mentoring uh, statement that that um, Eric made about people don't leave jobs, they leave leaders. Uh, if this is indeed true, uh, the really important question is how does a leader or a manager know where they stand with their team, right? I think that's, that's the first question. And uh, this, this reminds me a while ago, I had read about an article in a Harvard Business Review uh, on the same topic. And if I remember it right, it says, if you want to keep your people, especially your star players in the team, uh, it's time to pay more attention on how do you as a leader design their work. Most companies design jobs and then slot people into them, but good leaders and managers sometimes do the opposite, where they actually find talented people first, and they may be open to creating jobs around them. And, and the interesting uh, conclusion of this article uh, that, that made was, the three key and proven ways that managers can customize experience for their people or the star players, enable them to do work that they enjoy, help them play to their strengths, and the third, carve a path for their career development or accommodates personal priorities. Now, with that, I'll come back to the question. How does a leader or a manager know where they stand ahead of time? Uh, you mean with people who might leave the, the role? Uh, yeah, so I, I think it actually you sort of fed me some softballs for that for that already because you know if people are uh, uh, if you see them working on their career development within what you're offering right and I I think you know I've tried a formula here which is that I want a good sixty percent of people's time to be on stuff that they can just do but I want you know. I want a challenge role for them too, but perhaps with less of a deadline to it. And then, you know, some part that's just pure development. So the less of a deadline is stretch your skills and don't be under time pressure. Um, that's the sort of ideal. But uh, I think, you know, it, it's true that that phrase is very popular to say that they leave uh, leaders, but sometimes leaders 
don't have any um, arrows in their quiver, right? Because the the company is not uh, uh, able to provide those kind of things, and the leaders may or may not be able to communicate that the bat where that lack of stimulus is coming from, and and so then you know if you leave your employee without transparency on that, they would leave you because they blame you. If you sort of like, well, let's figure out what we can do, right? You know, thinking, because uh, Prakash, you brought up some points about, uh, you know, advocating for your team. I think uh, those are the kind of things you need to do to, to say, you know, I've got this great resource. Maybe we don't have funding, whatever it is, but how do we find something to keep this person engaged? That's great. Thanks, Eric. So I think, yeah, some really, really great points. And um, even just those kind of subtopics, I feel like we could fill the podcast with. Um, but I think some of the subtopics led quite nicely into Prakash's. So um, I think actually the like one of your one of your subtopics, Prakash, importance of fostering a growth and learning mindset in a team. I think what Eric just said there leads really, really nicely into that. So if you want to kind of kick us on with that and then we'll we'll move into um into your subtopics. Absolutely. So um, when I was coming up with my subtopics of conversation, it actually played very well along the journey that I've taken into management. And and I'm nowhere close to the amount of years of experience as Eric and Herman probably are in leadership. I'm probably the newest of, in, into this group who has been into this role of managing a team. So for me, um, when I took on this uh, role of a manager in my team, um, I was tasked with hiring, growing the team, and meeting business needs, right? And it put me in the situation where I had to start thinking about what kind of manager do I want to be? What kind of team do I want to really grow? What kind of composition of team and what kind of right talent and the right levels do I want to hire people into? How do I foster a collaborative team which is spanning across multiple time zones, multiple regions? Because Atlassian, if you all know, is a team anywhere company where a company promotes work from home uh, and you can work from pretty much anywhere in the world. So that poses a very uh, challenging um, collaboration situation for, for teams which is distributed across the globe. And uh, how do we, when we work on, as a data team, as leading a data team, oftentimes data engineering teams are at the bottom of the barrel where we build data assets, we build data capabilities for businesses to derive um, great impact for the company. but when it comes to recognition and and calling out uh, good work, data data teams often don't get those recognitions. So how do we uh, effectively promote those accomplishments within the team and tie the team's work to a business impact or OKRs as as we we follow in Atlassian? And the last one was actually the importance of fostering a growth mindset and a learning mindset because I often tell my team that um, each member's growth is something that they own. As, as a leader, as a manager, I'm here to guide them, nudge them in the right direction, and often growth and promotions in a company comes with opportunities and the readiness of the individual. Both go hand in hand, and without one, it doesn't work out with the growth uh, potential for a person. So with that, I, I just wanted to open up these uh, topics that I've talked about to my fellow colleagues, Eric and Herman, to just like, um, like talk a little bit about like how they have faced the same challenges of like building a, a large team, building team compositions, distributed work across the globe, 
and as as the say leaders of data teams which which you all seem to be are how do you get the necessary recognition for the data teams who do the great work i think actually the recognition is probably one of the hardest parts um like you said you're in the back end so um on one hand the one hand engineers are oftentimes not as outgoing as let's say the sales or marketing team so when when there's any recognition, uh, especially when it comes from the team to your, mm -hmm. let's say, a quarterly or monthly company-wide meetings that we have, um, sales and marketing definitely will self-promote. Engineering, not so much. And this is the same for full stack as well as uh, data engineers. Um, as a data engineer, you have the uh, additional um, disadvantage, I guess, that... Uh, Nothing is there to be seen, really. Uh, there's no cool features. There's no cool screens. Um, let's say doing a demo of an ETL is like, well, we have files here, and now they're gone. That's It's exciting for a data engineer because now it's in the database. It's all great. However, uh, it is not very flashy. So uh, to get recognition for, for that is, is indeed harder, uh, especially with the proclivity of engineers, of basically not, not uh, self-promoting. Um, so that that requires you as a manager to actually do more of that. And again, you're probably also one of the folks that naturally does not do that very much because you have an engineering background. You oftentimes have that same, uh, that same attitude. It's clear for my work. I, I do a great job. So uh, clearly everyone will understand how, how well we perform as a team, but... That, that's not quite how it works. So, so that's a good point. Um, now, with respect to uh, building a team, creating that kind of culture, um, I would have to go back when I started at my current position. Um, and, and I'm actually going to refer something that one of my engineers said last week to a, to a new employee. Um, when, when I joined, the team was quite disengaged. They were uh, demoralized. And one of the things, this is not on a very professional level per se, but one of the things I started doing immediately is like, we need to get this team together, not only in team meetings, but also, let's say, uh, a little bit in a, in a bit more of an informal way. Unfortunately, there was no budget for doing really cool things, going to restaurants. Uh, again, it was just a situation. But small things that you can do is, let's say, recognize their, uh, you could think of birthdays or an, uh, anniversaries. So I started bringing um, muffins or uh, or cake and we just took half an hour and just celebrated that. And that, that was it. Again, that, that doesn't solve all problems, obviously. But it was one of these things. Let's just wind down for a little bit, have, a, have something to snack on and just hang out together. Uh, of course, the first time... Um, I didn't realize that we had three diabetics in my team. So, so I was roasted mercilessly for trying to kill my team. Um, uh, but I'm sure you were forgiven by the rest of the team that ate the rest oh, of the yeah. cake. I would have loved that. Um, <laughs> you know what? The, all three actually cheated on their diet. So, uh, <laughs> so they definitely forgave me on it. But at that point, like, Mm, that was a bit of a blind spot for me. I, I did not think of that, obviously. Uh, and at that point, well, well, we'll find something more suitable next time, and that's fine. But the interesting thing is that uh, even years later, we talk about uh, almost six years ago when I started doing that, and then COVID hit, so it made it a lot harder. Um, 
but that uh, the engineer that I still have from that time, I'm, I'm a most senior engineer at this point, uh, still remembers that and still mentions like, this is one of those things that, that Herman started doing when he joined and we were so demoralized and uh, we just, uh, again, like you said, the bottom of the barrel, we're uh, at the bottom of the hill and everything rolls down from it. Um, and this is one of those things. On the other hand, you also have to make sure, like I said, you have to make sure that uh, your team is recognized. And when this work comes down, uh, that it's distributed correctly to the people that like to do particular tasks. And especially in data engineering, I believe that uh, the types of tasks are very varied. It's it's not just writing a UI. It's maybe ETL development, data cleansing, et cetera, right? There's, there's a wide variety of things. So give that to the right people. Um, in my position, we oftentimes do work directly with with clients, with customers. Not everyone is, is really uh, suitable and some people simply really don't like it. So don't give that to them. Um, and you may even pick it up yourself depending on, uh, on the, the customer engagement. Um, but I think Eric, uh, you probably have, have some more to say about that. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to actually go back to Prakash's question about mentoring, and uh, so one of the things about mentoring is uh, I'm going to get there. But uh, one of the things about mentoring is that uh, you know you don't just want to say you're doing great. Uh, you want to help people go beyond their current comfort zone. And one of the things I think that those of us in the technical realms don't realize is that self promotion is a skill. Right. And the people who self-promote really well practice the hell out. Right. They are working on their thing. They they're going, they're filming themselves, they're doing all this stuff. They're practicing just like you might do some practice coding steps or some, you know, all of that stuff. It comes naturally to them. They love it, blah, blah, but it's still something they work on. It's the same, it can be the same for you. You can get if you're in a big company or a medium company, you can get help. Uh, from you know from your organization on how to promote your team to promote so be more comfortable doing that get out of your own comfort zone <laughs> know what it feels like and and work on that because it will be appreciated by your team but also be appreciated by your company your company wants to solve problems and do more so when there's a team that is saying i can my team can do more you're promoting your team's ability. You don't want to go too far off the support of your ability, but you know you want to challenge for yourself. So you're 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 mentoring your team to go a little beyond their comfort zone, to feel challenged but not overwhelmed, and your team also as a group wants to be challenged but not overwhelmed. And so you know you have the responsibility to know what your team can do, to what what more they can do, and um, so so yeah. Self-promotion, a critical skill for your own career and for your team's uh, well-being. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you, Herman. Can we go back to you? Yeah. So about the self-promotion. So one of the, well, another thing that you can think of is uh, actually try to do some of those demos. Again, I, I was joking about it earlier. Like, well, we have a file here, and the ETL picks it up, and now it's it's gone, right? And it's in the database. However, uh, at least on a team level, have have team meetings where you do show uh, everybody's work, uh, so at least they can be recognized within the team and try to summarize that or have a, a faster demo in less detail uh, on a larger scale. And oftentimes, there's a lot of value that can come out of that as well. Uh, thinking of one of the projects that I've been uh, involved in 
in my first year, uh, a main ETL was not running very fast. Let's put it that way. And the company has had big struggles to actually make it faster. Now, when I jumped in, um, there were there were several issues around the uh, the ETL that that could be improved. And in in just about seven weeks, we were able to make that ETL five to six times faster, which is great. In the meantime, we've done quite a bit of other performance testing on it as well and robustness testing, and we were able to make it a lot more robust in that short window of time as well. And so this this is all great. So great customer impact. However, there is much more with that. So when we actually demoed that, um, the services department came to me and said, well, can we run this in in particular different ways? Uh, We require files to be... um, smaller so if if you load in this case it's member data uh basically patient data uh for insurance companies typically we recommend 10 to 25,000 members in in a file and break it up however because we made the tool so much more robust and faster uh we're able to go to literally millions of of uh members in a single file now you could say what's the impact of that why does that matter well, for some of our smaller customers that do have, uh, let's say, 100 or 200,000 members, they oftentimes don't have the, the know-how to break up these files nicely. So for to onboard them quicker, we now can say, well, just dump the whole file in. You don't have to break it up. It just makes that step easier. And, and as you grow, you will also get more technical know-how and will have time to, to fix that. And there are a couple of other um, related benefits uh, that we had that, that we could now implement with services. And had we not done done these demos, they would not have known about this and we'd never had this this discussion where we actually save probably literally hundreds of hours of of effort of the engine, sorry, of the services department handling multiple customers uh, to onboard them. Um, And again, so so it is not only nice sort of to uh, encourage people to put it that way and, and keep them on board, it also can uh, create direct monetary value on the other side, on the other side of, an, of the organization as well. So it, it is, I think it is important to, to promote your team and promote their work, show what they've done and create some synergies. Yeah, absolutely. Prakash, I wanna, wanna circle back to you if that's okay. Yeah, I just wanted to like close out my topic by just connecting all these dots that we just heard from Eric and Herman, great uh, conversations on that. So um, effectively promoting accomplishments within a team and tying them to business impact, it starts with understanding the business impact, being able to tie them to KPIs that every businesses have, crafting compelling narratives of how this team's work move the needle, either by being an enabler or a multiplier, just like how Eric mentioned, and leaders uh, helping setting the right individual goals to begin with so that the goals of the team is tied to the success of, of, of their career, of the business, and aligning with, with the business uh, outcomes. And lastly, creating a culture of peer recognition within the team, which actually uh, goes a long way in um, fostering a collaborative team culture. When, when a team recognizes each other's efforts, they, they give shout outs to each other regularly. That helps in building a really collaborative team uh, it, it, it encourages uh, diversity of thoughts, it encourages knowledge sharing, increases cross-functional collaboration in many ways, which, which actually comes back to the first question that I had was, 
hiring the right talent at the right levels, right? Like tying all of these things together, setting up the right goals, making sure that we can foster the collaboration in the team. It all comes together when we are able to hire the right people in the team who are a cultural fit, the team fit. And I think the role of leaders as, as us uh, really transcends with all of these things where we cannot go wrong in any one of these things because if we do, we end up hurting the team in one way or the other, either by team's morale or by hurting the delivery. And, and hence, like leadership in general has been uh, so rewarding for me because I, I can clearly see every action that I take day to day, I can see the effects of them down the line in months and weeks and, and years, right? And one of the best things that I get to do is actually um, when we end up uh, having a huge release of a project and we know that we've moved a needle for the company or a business, I love um, congratulating my team members for all the great work they've done. And that, that makes my day as a, as a manager, as a leader. Yeah, that's great. I think it, I'm so glad you uh, you touched on sort of not just kudos from leadership, but also putting it out there for the team as well, because I think, um, and it still does come back to leadership because you, you're kind of giving them the platform to do that. But if a team's um, kind of getting kudos from each other's, you know, from each other, like you say, it's creating that collaborative environment, but also encouraging people to kind of speak up where maybe they could have been a little bit more worried to before. So, um, yeah, I think that was a that was a really nice point you touched on there. And Eric, did you have something to add there? Yeah, I guess uh, uh, as a data science team leader, our team is critically dependent on data engineering teams such as you two are leading. And one of the things we've done is we've identified We've worked together to identify how their activities support things that are more visible in the deliverables. We've explained how, you know, we've shown that data engineering team the sort of similar demos that we would show to the business units. And that helps them, A, be motivated, and B, us, you know, they can ask questions why we do this, why we don't do that. So we become more informed. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we try to acknowledge our debt. And so... You know, I don't know, that was happening before I got here, but it arose organically that helps get the resources for the data engineering team. So there's a sort of enlightened self-interest there to, to make sure to explain that these things didn't just get here by magic. They got here by sweat. And so uh, uh, that uh, is what I wanted to say on that. And then in terms of hiring people, of course, this is a one of the hardest things we do is invest in uh, hiring people. And um, I guess for data science, I have like, what what do I need as core things that are sort of there already versus things I can teach, right? So, you know, we don't, we of course cannot hire people who know every machine learning algorithm because nobody can know them all. So what do we, you know, what are we looking for is ability to demonstrate competence in, in acquiring them. So this leads me to like, what are the core competencies, right? So facility with core activities of the work. Uh, in our case, we also need a lot of curiosity, right? So driven by curiosity to solve problems. If, you know, it, it, some people can be handed, maybe they can just be handed some coding and do it and feel satisfied they've checked off all these things, but without necessarily needing to, to look at the patterns in the data. I have to find people who are curious and must know what's in the data, yet be pragmatic enough to be like, okay, I got to back off here and <laughs> manage my time. And then um, 
I also need empathy. If people don't come in with empathy, they're not going to be able to work with business people to understand their problems, right? So if if they seem to be unempathetic, I'm also going to be like, mm, what role? There's restricted set of roles I could have for this person. So I just tried to identify like the absolute must-have competencies. And then I'm like, I'm open to anybody, right? Like it just has to be open, right? I need diversity i need you know i need to be uh, uh not filtering on anything but the absolute core things and give people a chance to you know sort of um show if they can contribute we actually have a fairly difficult assignment that we give a lot of times it takes like a day or so but we're very it's not any trick questions right there's no it's no trick questions. It's just it's very straightforward. Like this is the real kind of work you would be doing with us, even though it's a toy example in some ways. So those are those are my go-to. How do I hire the right people? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important as well, especially from my point of view, coming from from the recruitment industry. It's so important to to go into the process knowing those fundamentals, but also having the flexibility. So having like two sets of okay, this is what we need, but this is what we can be flexible on. That's that's really, really important. So it's, uh, yeah, it's nice to kind of hear you talking about that, Eric. But yeah, I think I think you guys summed some of the sub, subtopics up really, really well. And I think it leads us really nicely. Eric touched on it um, into to Herman's subtopics. The first one being diversity and inclusion within, within engineering teams. That is, in my opinion, a full podcast by itself. So it's going to be hard mm-hmm. to... to to kind of narrow this down but do you want to kick us off with that one herman yeah sure so um well the first uh diversity of course is uh, spoken a lot about in the recent few years i guess uh maybe a little bit longer than a f- recent few years um in my opinion it oftentimes is uh misunderstood or maybe i have a different view from most other people uh oftentimes we like to look at very superficial or literally skin deep issues um which uh, in in my experience has not worked very well for me uh on on one hand on the one hand assuming that let's say well with prakash here that his way of thinking is different from mine because we look different uh i think is is a very limiting belief and potentially offensive uh and i saw that in my own team when i when i joined well yeah, when, when I joined this company, my team was uh, very diverse. I would say on on the surface, on the surface level, uh, and we talk about uh, I actually for a data engineer an overrepresentation of women uh, and a transgender woman in in my team and people from all over the world, uh, including um, one of my my American team members was Hispanic. I didn't have a very large team, but still. Uh, plus um, team members in multiple countries as well. So a, a, a highly diverse team on the surface. However, when I was interviewing uh, people, I had originally agreed with the team, let's make this a team decision. Now I think that this is not the right way to go about it, but that's that. we'll get back to that. Um, so let's make it a team decision. And if anyone really doesn't like the candidate, it's just a no. Uh, we all have to be really uh, happy with this candidate, candidate. And if there's two people on the fence, it's going to be a no. Um, what ended up happening is that um, because they were all thinking so similar, my data engineers were all thinking very similar. They would ask very similar questions and had very similar criteria. 
And their expectation, they were much more focused on the process and the skills that a that person had rather than the personality, attitudes, etc. Um, there were great candidates that I liked and I would have hired. And I think the team needed to have a diverse perspective. But they all said no, despite their different looks, genders, etc. Et that they all had the same opinion. No, we're not going to hire this this person because or, or they were all on the fence. Um, oftentimes simply because some uh, obscure SQL Server functionality was uh, not something that this person had ever used. And therefore, because we do use it, it will be a no. Like, well, this is something that you can learn. Um, so again, uh, diversity doesn't sit, it's, it's, like I said, it's not a skin deep issue. You have to look at uh, different ways of thinking. Um, now, if we do want to include, let's say, the, the typical uh, surface level um, diversity, I think that that could be a good signal. If your whole team looks exactly like you, maybe you're not fishing in a big enough of a pond. You may be just fishing in your own little pond and uh, you go to your own church, synagogue, temple, you post some, something there and the people that come your way that way, right, word, word of, of mouth. And of course, you'll get people from your own circles more than from other circles. So um, so if, if everyone looks the same, that may, then maybe a, a signal that you're actually leaving out 80% of the world that have great candidates, great skills, great attitudes, and they don't even get a chance. And you don't get a chance to interview them because they never speak with you. So that, that's really a missed opportunity. Um, now, again, um, to include, well, to include diversity, I think some of the things that are important is that uh, when you're interviewing candidates, since that's where it starts out, it makes sense to at least come up with clear criteria. What am I looking for? Not just a data engineer that can write SQL, just as Eric mentioned, uh, those are skills that people can, can learn. Uh, I do expect that any data engineer knows SQL, obviously, um, but are they all rock stars in um, query optimization? Senior engineers, I would expect so. Uh, Mid-level or junior engineers, maybe not so much. So maybe you want to look at some other uh, other skills. And for me, if I look at uh, aptitude, I think thinking through problems is is a very important thing. So give them a problem to work through that, struggle with the problem. And can they at least think in a logical way through a problem and come up with um, at least how would they solve it? Even if the solution solution isn't there, how would you solve that? That's that's one of the things. And I think from an attitude perspective, the the three things that I like to look at are: uh, are they actually hungry? Do they like to work? Will they will they actually solve a problem when it's hard? Will they will they be there when tough times hit? Um, and of course, one of the questions you could ask around that is like, what do you like to do when you're not working? Well, if it's if their um, hobbies are more important than work. Of course, everyone needs to have downtime, but if their hobbies are much more important than work, um, well, what if I need you when there's a customer production down? Will you be? Are you willing to jump on a call, or are you nowhere to be found? Right. Um, as well as are they humble? I think that's a very important one. Again, looking at uh, team culture. Um, so, for they, at least for a lot of engineers, it's it's quite easy to work in a silo. You have your, you get your, um, your tasks. Uh, we have some of an adolescent. You get your Jira tasks. Um, you're working on 
whatever the scope of the task is, and you give you you throw it over the wall to QA. Um, but now, how how do you make sure that a team works as a team and that accomplishments are seen not as what I did, but as a team accomplishment? So they're throwing over the wall to QA. No, it, it's your product, and QA is not supposed to just find the problems. There shouldn't be bugs in your code, and otherwise you're going to work through that. So, so you have to have a sense of ownership, but also, again, like as, as a team. So when you accomplish something and when you celebrate uh, your great accomplishment, it's not about each little feature that everyone wrote and that they owned. It's it's the overall customer impact. So, um, and again, if, if you think of interview questions, uh, if, and if I go too deep, just let me know. But uh, what are the most important accomplishments in your career? Now, it's good to hear that people uh, solve complex problems, but also can they, do they also recognize how their team members helped or can they come up with an example that uh, required help from others, not only from themselves? And then the other thing I would say, are they smart? And uh, not only are they, do they have a high IQ? Uh, they probably all went through some engineering uh, program um, although in my team, that was not true. Uh, I had an English major and a history major that were both rock stars. Um, and then of course you have, uh, but are they smart with people? How do they deal with people? So when, when there is a dis disagreement, can they bring that to you or can they solve it amongst each other, um, without getting in a big fight? Uh, or do I have to babysit them like children? Um, and of course, um, that, that the questions around like uh, what have you ever had a difficult coworker or a difficult boss and how did you deal with that and uh, their answer will probably um, show whether they have great interpersonal uh, capabilities or not. So by uh, I think going back to diversity uh, by being clear that I'm looking at these kind of aspects as much or even more than whether they can write the best and prettiest sequel. Um, I think that that is important. And, and again, um, yeah, you do want to have a basic level of know-how, uh, but if they don't know a specific uh, feature or function that we do use a lot, they will pick it up. They will, they will learn. Uh, so that should not be a deal breaker in of itself. It, it should be the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so important. And I think a lot of people, it's tough, isn't it? Because I think people and hiring managers do forget that when they're kind of in that interviewing environment, they expect everybody to be absolutely perfect and not take other factors into consideration. One of which being nerves, you know, people don't always um, perform well in that interview environment Um, depends on the kind of situation that they're given. So yeah, I think it's, it's super important. Um, so yeah, some really, really interesting thoughts within kind of diversity of thought there. And like you say, not just skin deep. Um, so something I was also curious about, Herman, you put innovation leadership down as one of your subtopics. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. <clears throat> one, <laughs> give me one, uh, one moment to uh, collect my thoughts. Don't worry. I'll take, I'll, I'll pop this, uh, this down and marketing can take it out. Don't worry. Um, <clears throat> So again, innovation leadership, um, I think there's um, different facets here. So on, one, on the one hand, 
of course you, you need to create uh, a culture where differences of, of opinion so that like we invite dissent where differences of opinion different views are invited um but also to really be innovative and um and in in a useful manner is that you will have to focus on on the impact uh, what is the ultimate customer uh the ultimate customer impact of whatever you deliver and so I'm, I'm going actually a little bit the other the opposite way perhaps uh what i've noticed in a lot of engineers and whenever whenever i'm coding myself i tend to do the same is i like to gold plate everything and i think a lot of engineers like to gold plate things because it is also easy to add another toggle another switch another like little just in case what if we just added this in the future we may or may not need a switch, uh, a parameter that, that will greatly help us if and when we need it. However, in many cases, that is simply not true. You, you either don't need it or you don't need it now. And that little toggle that takes you, let's say, two hours to uh, to add, also add, uh, adds another two to four hours to QA and to documentation and to uh, disseminating around the company. Um, and then it has to be maintained. So the the impact of adding something that looks perhaps useful, but it was not on the roadmap and is not really tied to any specific de deliverables ends up costing you a lot. But that also takes away time that you could be driving customer impact. So focusing on, let's say, the minimum viable product, uh, I think that's, that's a big one. Um, and then... On the flip side of that, well, how do you then translate that to uh, the the time that you saved and and build great products? Um, I think there, to great respects, as a as a leader, you have to have great uh, clarity of what are we trying to accomplish here. Um, so again, looking at at customer impact, and, and that also ties back to some of the other discussions we had. Um, how do you measure? And I think Prakash, you you mentioned that very well. Um, KPIs of uh, what what your employees have accomplished. Again, uh, how well did they deliver, and what kind of quality did they they deliver in what time frame? Uh, so, but again, you, you need you need great clarity as a leader uh, in order to accomplish that, and in, and in order to lead that. That's great. Thank you, Herman. Eric, have you got something to add there? Yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of second that, uh, that that uh, instead of working on gold plating, I think one of the antidotes to that is to, to for the leadership to be communicating the value of what we're doing now, but also the, the bigger challenges, because there's a lot of resources in our data, in our engineering stack that are not being used because there's no reason to use them now, right? Instead of building switches that you don't need now, uh, know what you do need now and what could be done. And then there's, it, it's not that hard to innovate if you sort of, because you have, as data engine, data people, we have intimate knowledge of all these different aspects of the data that are not being used. So what it takes is connecting the dots between, well, what are the big challenges that are out there that we think are, that maybe the business people think are too hard, but are actually not that hard. They just haven't asked or nobody told us. So innovation requires that dialogue between 
the the day to day and the longer term, you know, six months or even three year challenges of your uh, area that your company is working in. That's great. Thank you, Eric. Prakash, did you have anything to add or do you think the guys summed it up pretty well there? I think uh, Herman and Eric summed up pretty well. I just wanted to add one one quick statement there on innovation leadership. Often leadership in data teams is very challenging compared to non-data teams or comparing it to engineering teams in general because data leadership is mostly about being having the skill set of a data analyst in some ways, having the skill set of a data engineer in many ways, having a skill set of a little bit of an architect in many ways where uh, a leader is is supposed to be kind of like aware of wide things around data landscape, about data technologies, about uh, different uh, change of the times as we see in the data world as technologies are evolving much, much faster than companies can really adopt them today. So uh, leadership in, in data space is particularly very challenging. And I think the only thing that, that I try to do on a daily basis is that 1% improvement every day, if I can make that. Um, I'm quoting it from that book, Atomic Habits, where just try to learn a little bit every day, try to understand what's happening in the industry. How can we use some of this knowledge that keeps changing quite a bit in the industry, bring it back to your company, back back to your team, and play this hybrid role of, as I said, a data engineer, an analyst, a data scientist, and an architect, and everything in one, and the scope just ever keeps ever increasing. So I uh, definitely wanted to kind of close with that thought. That's great. Thank you, Prakash. Um, so I guess if we, Herman, if we move on to your your last kind of subtopic, which is interdisciplinary and interdepartmental leadership, uh, which again, really, really great topic, quite a big topic as well, and probably quite mm-hmm. prevalent for, for everybody here. So especially in, in data engineering, when you're managing the databases and the data uh, in those databases, um, you're really um core to the platform of of your product right and with that everyone and and every basically every department of the organization to a great respect depends on you uh or interacts with you it's it's a bit different from what i would believe feature teams that build a new feature on top of again your database um they can build it more or less in a silo of course there has to be an overarching um vision of of what needs to be done however um everything that that they do may actually affect your database everything that you do will affect literally everyone in the organization a, a poorly performing database poorly designed database um affects everyone um your etl or etls um take data from anywhere and everywhere you, you want to get it and load it into your database or uh, you expose data to the rest of the, of the organization. So, so I would argue that the database is really the heart of your product, the heart of the organization. Now, with that, as a leader in that field, it becomes critically important that you actually have close relationships with leaders in all those departments uh, and understand their needs. And you'll have to try and and have them understand your limitations again that comes back to uh, managing client expectations to a great respect um so and one of the things that i did when i joined the company i'm working for now cider um is my first two weeks i effectively had one-on-ones with p 
people all across the organization to just understand their struggles, what what were they dealing with, and and again by creating those relationships, I was able to, um, referring back to my example earlier, uh, when we improved the performance of a, of our ETL, and the uh, the robustness of that ETL, um, there was a direct line with uh, one of the um, services team leaders uh, who who had a question. Can we load larger data sets at a time? In the past, that was not possible. Now we have a better ETL that runs faster. And the answer was, sure, we actually had tested it. So, And, and there were other impacts that we uh, could make simply by creating that, that relationship. So that's, that's the first thing, have that relationship across the organization. Now, when you work for a very large organization, that may be a bit harder, uh, but at least look within your own business unit or your own uh, product unit depending on how your organization is uh, organized um so uh and you have the relationship and, and understand what what the needs uh of these departments are um and then again um you you do need to disseminate your your the information you have to share what you have accomplished what the impacts are and again this comes back to impact um we have an ETL that runs faster, sure, but what does that mean? Uh, because that goes oftentimes further than just uh, it runs faster, it's more robust. Um, how is it better and what's the meaning? So for one of our customers, they had difficulty loading the whole data set every night. Particular nights, our ETL was, uh, they have so much data and the performance of our ETL, the combination of those two led to um, the loading of the data spilling outside of their uh, window. So they had to split it in two, two different groups, but that means that your data now is always two days old. Um, so again, by making the ETL uh, for them around five, five and a half times faster, of course, this problem went away. They can load all the data in, in roughly a third of the time now, what they otherwise would load every night, but loading both uh, data sets. Um, and of course, looking further, uh, we're currently working on uh, solving this uh, overnight loading problem altogether by being able to directly reach into their source systems. That's a whole different discussion. I think that would be a, another great topic for another day. Um, but how do you integrate uh, on a real-time or near real-time data uh, different systems with with your system? And again, that's that's an interesting uh, data engineering challenge. That's great. Thank you so much, Herman. Um, Eric, Prakash, have either of you got anything to add to that or think no? Herman summed it up. <laughs> great stuff. We're going to leave it there. This is the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Eric, Prakash and Herman for providing their insights into this topic. And thank you for listening.